Man, guys, I'm going old school today. So, hello, first off, welcome to Frontline Bible Church. I am Will Hess. Um, I am stepping in for Pastor John as he is at a pastor's conference. I really wanted to actually go to it, but I wasn't able to due to work. So, I am here uh, talking to you all. So, uh, you can imagine my disappointment. No, I'm just kidding. So, um, also, John has, like, stepped it up recently, started wearing ties. So, I thought it was appropriate that I take it up another step. So, um, it has nothing to do with ego, I swear. So, um, no, just kidding. But thank you all for being here today. Um, I actually, I, I was commenting how, like, old school I feel because, one, I don't like having my notes propped up on the table. So, I was like, nope, need the, need the pulpit. I, I can't, we have one of these. I saw our guest speaker use it. I'm like, I'm using this because it's a lot easier for me. And then, also, a friend of mine, he, like, does, re- he restores Bibles and stuff. And he restored this really nice King James Bible. So it's actually funny because I'm like, I'm wearing a suit. Got the King James Bible. I got a pulpit. This is like old school, man. Um, But I have a PowerPoint. So anyway, not as old school. But anyhow. Uh, Well, guys, thank you all for being here this morning. We are continuing our series of Realizing Unity. And I have uh, the great privilege to speak about how proper theology leads to practical unity. And so if anyone knows anything about me, I'm passionate about many things. I'm a very passionate person, uh, probably too much. But one of the things I'm extremely passionate about is unity. So I'm passionate about apologetics and unity in the church because I think the church is too divided over silly things over all the time. They fight each other at each other's throats. Um, I will debate with anybody, but you're still my brother, right? So we're going to talk about this, and I was really struggling with this sermon this week. I am not going to lie. I was struggling with it, trying to put my, wrap my head around it because for me, this concept of theology and unity is this big, okay? And I got you for this much time. So I'm going to do my best to condense my information. I, a lot of stuff was left on a chopping room floor. I left a lot on it. So we're going to go through this, and hopefully we'll end at a decent time. But we're going to be jumping around a lot because I'm not pulling from one particular text because as we're talking to the topic of unity, we're going to be bouncing everywhere. So throughout this sermon, I'll have a point, and you'll see the references we're going to. I will reference them, um, and I'll ask you to turn to the important ones, okay? Not that any part of the Bible is not important, but you get my point. (laughs) You can see somebody boo in the back, but all right. So how many of you have ever started a job? You start this job, and they're like, oh, we're going to train you. We're going to teach you, and you start this job, and they didn't. And you start this job, you jump in, and you're, it's, it's sink or swim. Like, they just throw you in the deep end, like, well, good luck, right? We've all had that moment. At least, if you've had it, I don't know if you're in the workforce for any time, period of time, you probably have that. I've def- definitely experienced that before where, hey, man, we're going to teach you, and then you're not. And then what happens is that you are left stranded. You end up failing miserably. You ruin the rest of your team's work, Right? You really jack things up. You're unsure of how to even help. So you get frustrated. And sometimes you want to quit. Right? This isn't worth it. This sucks. (laughs) I'm out of here. But this is exactly what happens when the church has an improper understanding of God and theology. You see, because God is our training. He's the one who teaches us how to act and how to behave. And then he's the one who commands us to be unified. But then there's only certain things he commands us to be unified in, right? So then we have to start asking, am I doing proper training, right? When I'm studying scripture, am I studying scripture so I can talk to my wife about her problems, 
right? Like I'm reading Ephesians 5, I'm like, ha, got it. Or you read that part where women should keep silence in the church out of context and you throw it at your wife and hoping that it works. Or are you actually using the Bible the way you're, we're supposed to, which is introspectively, to learn from God to build us, right? So when we're talking about theology, theology, so there's this weird idea, and this is why we have the apologetics class on Sundays, which, by the way, has been moved in here uh, because we're getting too, much, too many people over there. Apologetics class is in here now. That's why we do that, because I want you guys to have a proper understanding of God because that affects us practically, and that's what we're talking about. So many people seem to believe that studying theology, which is the study of God, right, is for monks who have nothing better to do than to live in the mountains and pontificate on God's attributes. But this is not true. Theology is for everyone. Theology is for everyone. Having a proper understanding of God is crucial in living a proper Christian life and operating in unity with one another. So, maybe... Aha! Biblical unity is practical theology. That's all there is to it. Biblical unity is practical theology. So if you want to experience proper biblical unity, you must understand practical theology. For the church is called the body of Christ for a reason. The body of Christ. There's a reference here to Christ. And Christ did a lot of talking about God and theology, didn't he? So, if you want to experience proper biblical unity, you must understand practical theology. So the church is called the body of Christ for that purpose. And I think we must pay attention to that. Um, yeah. So first, we're going to talk about the unity in God, which is unity in the Trinity. That has a fun little rhyme to it. Makes it easy to remember. But when we're talking about unity in the church, how many of you guys want to be in a unified body? Have you guys ever had division in your church? It's a really awkward situation. You come to church, like, oh, we're going to worship Jesus. Ooh, but not you. You know, like, we get the, there's this weird tension, and it's not good because the body is now turned on itself. So we're going to talk about that. But first, we need to look at our example. And our example is God himself. Um, if we can use the word Hashem, which is the uh, Hebrew for the name. That's what they referred to God, the Jews, well, the, the name we can just talk about God for a second, we'll see this. The early church got together. Many of you guys might know this if you know anything about Christian history. Got together, and there's many councils, arguments, and debates on who is Jesus. Uh, we call this, uh, you know, you could call this Christology, and that's what they were doing. Who is Jesus? What is his relationship to God? And there's a lot of debate. But eventually it came to a consensus on all the biblical data that, we're, that God exists in a trinity, which is triunity. Three persons in one being. Now people go, how is that even possible? Guys, I'm a human, okay? I have no idea. <laughs> but actually, there are actually a lot of theories and a lot of ways to explain this. I don't have the time for that. Plus, most every time you try to explain it, you fall into other issues. So I'm just not going to. <laughs> but the point is, God exists in three beings. It's not contradictory because three, beings, uh, three persons can exist in one being. Uh, one... Uh, one example that's always a poor example is people with multiple personality disorders, right? There's multiple people in one being, but that's a negative example. But anyway, <clears throat> oh, I saw a thing recently that said like, yeah, <clears throat> uh, my wife recently told me that she had multiple personality disorder. I was like, what? Babe, are you serious? And she's like, don't listen to her. She's crazy. Um, so, but <laughs> there it is. But God calls, uh, calls us to be unified, doesn't he? 
So God is unified within himself. There are three persons revealed in Scripture who bear the authority of God. That is God himself, the Father. We see the, 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 the God the Son, and we see God the Holy Spirit. And all of these are God. Now, you can, you can explain it in multiple different ways, but I think as long as we have the understanding, we have unity, don't we? So, all right, let's go ahead and do this. Uh, go all the way to the front of your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. This is very simple. Uh, and then, of course, put your finger in John 1, because <laughs> we're going to be bouncing around. So, Genesis 1, 1 through 2 says this. You guys should be familiar with these verses. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was, was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. We see a few things mentioned here. God, Elohim, that's the name in Hebrew. Hebrew is in the proper, present, plural tense. Plural. Now people can talk about this as, oh, that means uh, a royal we. Like, you know, we declare. Sure. But also does not mean... <laughs> could be hinting towards something, right? A tri-unity. Uh, tri and that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. The Spirit is a little bit different here, right? Um, it's not saying God was hovering, it's the Spirit was hovering. And then we go to John chapter 1, and this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture ever, and I'll try not to just go off on 40 rabbit trails. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 says, I hear pages rustling, rustling, John chapter 1. This is one's important. I definitely want you guys to be familiar with John chapter 1. If you're not familiar with John chapter 1, get familiar with it. That's actually very, very interesting. Which, John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You catch that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Who, who was he was? The Word is a he? We see later in John that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is that? Jesus. So Jesus, who dwelt among us, is the Word, and he was with God from the beginning. Well, God doesn't have a beginning. <laughs> so you, this, is a, this is John trying to point something out here that Jesus and God synonymous. Okay? All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and yet darkness did not overcome it. That is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to just read 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and it says this. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, all things from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. So he's going, okay, the God, the Father, we exist for him, but we live through Jesus Christ. In other words... There's different roles here, but they're both God. Okay? There's a unity in God. You have that role, I have this role, but we all make up the Godhead. Okay? Here we see the unity of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, and the Father all playing equal part in creation as well, right? All these have a creation narrative to it. It's all about the creation event. And all saying that the Spirit, God the Father... And God the Son, all were equally part of the creation. There's a unity there. Now notice this next passage. Not only is each member of the Trinity given a different role, operating role, but 
also that we are included in this. Do me a favor, turn to John chapter 14 real fast. This one is important. Told you guys, we're all over the place, and I think it's important that we do. Because this is a frontline Bible church. Hey, we're all about the Bible here. So, um, I don't want it to be my words. I want it to be God's word primarily, okay? So, I want us to know that I'm not speaking heresy, and I'm not making stuff up as I go. Um, fanfic Bible, right? From the book of Will. Nobody wants that. So, John chapter 14, Jesus says this in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, who will give you another counselor, that's the Holy Spirit, as we see in Acts, to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. So not only is God unified within himself, but what does this reveal? That he is unified in us. He is in you. That is what the Holy Spirit is. So, he is unified in us believers. It says right there that he will be in you. The Spirit of God, the Comforter, resides within the believer. So, let's break this down theologically here, okay? God exists in three persons. In a, tr in a trinity, a triunity. He's unified in himself. Each one, the Spirit dwells within us. The Son was the atonement for our sins. And God the Father is the authority and the Godhead, right? So that, but do they all work together? Yes. Is anyone greater than the other? No. They work together. Although someone might say, whew, the spirit that dwells within man, that's got to be a horrible existence. He's definitely the bottom of the totem pole. He's not sitting on the throne or at the right hand of the Father. Definitely the spirit gets the short stick. That's not how it works. Because we're looking at it too much like a human paradigm. To serve is not to be lower. It's just not. So, now that we've addressed that there is unity in the Trinity of God, let's talk about how that directly applies to us in unity in the body. So, if God is unified within himself, then chooses to be unified with us, and then he commands us to be unified amongst each other, how much the more should we strive to be unified? Take that, take that for a second. If you're in our, you've been in my apologetics class or you've been in other sermons of mine, you've heard me make the moral argument for God's existence, right? If, if objective, which is true for everybody, moral values exist, God, then God exists. Objective moral values do exist, therefore God must exist, right? Otherwise, morality is just subjective by space accident monkeys who all disagree with each other, okay? And we're all just hurling around a rock until we just cease to exist. We're just electrons firing. There is no transcendent meaning or morality. You go, okay, what does this have to do with unity? Everything. Because God says, be unified. You know what that, that is? A moral statement. There's a moral expectation to be unified in the body. So if God is unified within himself, we must be unified with each other because he chose to be unified with us. So notice how Paul uses this view of God. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This, if you're not familiar with this, I wonder if you go to a New Testament church sometimes. Because <laughs> it's one of the most popular things about talking about the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
and we're going to start in verse 12. So 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul says this, For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? And he goes on to say in verse 22, on the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe though these with greater honor, and our unrespectable parts we are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Now, I don't think I need to explain what respectable and unrespectable parts are. Yeah, fun fact for you, Jews did not care. And Paul was a Pharisee and a Jew. He speaks very plainly about a lot of these topics. But what's his, what's his point here? Is it an anatomy lesson? No, he's making a comparison. If we are the body of Christ, that means we can't be turned on each other. We still need the eye, the ear, the arm, the hand. And you know what that means? That those people you disagree with, those people you don't get along with, the body needs. There is no part of the body that's indispensable. Have you guys ever thought of what it would be like? Like, oh, if I were to lose any limb, I'd choose the pinky toe, right? The pinky toe. It's the smallest one. I don't need it. Do you know it's like the, one of the biggest toes for balance? And then you're like, ah, it's not, the, it's not that important. It's very important. This is the body of Christ, okay? This is God's tool against the armies of darkness, and we ought to value each other. Every member in the body, all of us, might have different functions, different gifts. You might look at somebody in the body and go, I don't get them. They're a little weird. But I'm sure the eyeball feels that way about a spleen, okay? I'm sure it's a very... But you get the idea. Sometimes it's very foreign to you, but that's not the point. The point is we're all part of the body. All of us might have different functions, but none of us are greater than the other. The nursery worker back there right now is just as important as the maintenance man, the teacher, the preacher, the greeter, the singer, the giver, the attender, on and on we could go. We're all just equally important. We just play different roles. I mean, what, seriously, what would this church be without greeters? You'd walk into a cold, empty little spot and everyone's mingling. You don't have anyone that helps guide you. It's a big building, guys. And just so you know, there's a place that kind of looks like the auditorium over there because it used to be one. <laughs> and now we have this one here. I mean, people knew you need them. You need people to help guide the traffic. You need the worship leaders. You also need the, the instrumentalists, right? It's one thing to have a singer, but singer means nothing if you don't have instruments, right? Unless you just are really good at acapella. In which case, I'll listen. I'll tolerate. Point is here, guys, is that the body is a whole bunch of parts together. And also notice this. What did he say? The body is not about ethnicity. It's not about sex. It's not about age. These things are more, like, the gospel and the body is far more important than that. That's one of the coolest parts about the body of Christ, is that it takes all these things that people think are important, casts them aside, and transcends us as image bearers of God, and that's it. 
Your race doesn't matter. Your age doesn't matter. Your ethnicity, none of these matter. Because you're just part, God is unified in you as an image bearer of God. That's your identity. Which means we should take it seriously. So Christian unity is the result of God bringing together people of differing ethnicities, backgrounds, social classes into one family or a body by faith in Christ. The church's unity, which is already a unity, right, because it's spiritual, but reflects the glorious unity of the Trinity to the effect that a watching world is compelled to believe the truth of the gospel. One of the things I hear all the time, um, because many of you guys might be aware that uh, I work in more of an apologetic sphere, broader, um, online, and one of the things is, is that I hear people complain about the church all the time because they've all had a horrible experience at church. I mean, you can relate. I have a horrible experience at church. We've all had one, most likely. And it's usually because the body wasn't unified. They were being nasty and malicious toward one another. And then many people leave the church. They leave God. They don't want to deal with it because they were like, if, that's God, if the body is God, I don't want to be part of that body. Now, you might go, well, they're confusing people with God. You're right. They are. But also, you're supposed to be the representative. Are you representing? And how you respond to one another. So does the body of Christ need those also who disagree? Because some people hear unity and they think agree. No. Guys, in the 12 disciples, you had a tax collector and a zealot. You don't know what that means back in those times. Zealots were like the libertarian party, like, oh, down with Rome, down with the system, let's all be free. And, the, and Matthew, the tax collector, he's the government shill. Like, he's the one that every libertarian hates. But they were following with Jesus, unified in their purpose. They might have had some political disagreements, but they're unified in purpose. So, yes. The body needs people who disagrees. After all, if everyone agreed, that'd make it too easy. And not only too easy, but make it foolish. Because you need someone to disagree with you once in a while to correct you. Or at least to challenge you and make you think, hmm, is this the right move? So also doesn't need the church that you might disagree with. Doesn't need the Baptist church down the road that I used to pastor. Um, doesn't need the Baptist church down the road. Yes. Doesn't need the Anglican church. Yes. Doesn't need the Lutheran and the Methodist. Absolutely. I will even go out on a limb here. Don't murder me. But yes, it needs the Catholics. I've known people that have come to Jesus Christ because of reading Thomas Aquinas. And they read Aquinas and they're like, I was an atheist until I read this. It's the most beautiful picture of God I've ever read in my life. Look, man, I don't have to agree with every part of your doctrine. We can have debates all day long. But as long as our faith and trust is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'm good. Okay? It even, <laughs> coming off of 2020, it even needs your mask wearers and your naked facers. It needs them both, okay? It needs your, it needs all of it. No one is, no one is less important than the other. Uh, at my old church, I even had a young earther, young earth creationist, who was an engineer, with a flat earth, young earth creationist, who was an engineer, and an old earth theistic evolutionist, who was also an engineer. I walked into that conversation, and they literally pulled out graph paper. And they're just like going on all, the, all, all sorts of maths. And I'm like, I'm a theologian. I am not prepared for this. I'm out. <laughs> Have fun. And 
But you know what? They attended the same church and they all loved one another. They didn't let some petty divide of shape of the earth, age of the earth, how exactly creation went down. They didn't let that split them apart because they all agreed God did it. <laughs> there was a unity in purpose. So, there ought to be unity in diversity in a church. If there's not, you have a cult. Okay? Unity and diversity. We can disagree on various things, but we ought to have one standard. The scriptures. We ought to be digging in this. And that way, we're using the same standard. I might disagree with you, but man, we're wrestling the scriptures. Uh, in fact, Andrew, my friend, is here today, and him and I were having a debate last night a little bit on a few issues. And it was fun. But he's my brother. And now my child is making demon noises in the back. <laughs> Anyone online did not hear that. See, sometimes you have to be here to appreciate it. Um, so this means, but also guys, this means that you can disagree on things. We're using the same standards, but guys, when we fight as a body, we should be asking ourselves something. Am I fighting for myself? Am I just fighting for me or am I fighting for we? Am I fighting for my own ego? Or should, do I need to get out of my own way so that the church can thrive? Sometimes, it's, sometimes that you're in the way. Other times, you're needed to be the guy who stands in the gate and goes, oh, okay, I love you all, but I don't think this is the right move. That's okay. But unity is a tricky thing because we want to reflect our creator of whose image we are created in. But this also means we must reflect his nature, which is holiness, right? So, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because there is a harsh reality when we're talking about unity. I think we all could agree people disagreed in Scripture. In fact, Paul, remember Paul, like, cast out Mark? He's like, nope, we're done with Mark. He sucks. We're done. And then later on, he's like, okay, you know what? He is profitable for the ministry. Remember that? There's a lot of parts in Scripture where you might see some disunity. Actually, Acts chapter 15 is one of my favorite parts because they're trying to figure out what to do with the Gentiles now. Like, the Gentiles are part of us now. They're grafted into this covenant. I don't know what, what do we do about it? And it says in Acts 15, it cracks me up every time, there was no small disagreement. <laughs> but they were still together, united in purpose of Jesus Christ. They might have disagreed on how to handle it, but they were still united. But right here, guys, the harsh reality is that sin in any form will destroy the body of Christ. It's a cancer, it grows, it multiplies, and it destroys us. That's what Paul's getting at here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let's read verse 1. It is actually reported, as Paul speaking, that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated amongst the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove him from the congregation, the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that the, his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Oh, grace and love, Pastor Will. Grace and love. 
Where's the grace of love? But guys, it's because sin is dangerous. So he says that, okay, this is the guy sleeping with his father's wife. That's messed up. Okay? It's like a stepmom. And what does he call him? Arrogant. <laughs> you read this, and he goes, not even the Gentiles do this. And you guys might be like, Gentiles, what's the big deal there? He, they're talking, to, they're in Corinth. Corinth was known for, like, public orgies. Not trying to be graphic, just being honest. And they're even like, whoa, even they have lines, bro. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but it's also horrible. <laughs> and it's like, even they don't even do this. In fact, uh, one of the things that uh, the Jews would call Gentiles would be cooney, meaning beasts or animals, because they're crazy. They're a bunch of cooney. <laughs> so, as important as unity is, and I am passionate about it, I will go, I will fight to the grave alongside you, even though we might disagree on 40 topics. But as important as unity is, unity can easily be, be destroyed by sin. It can be. Have you guys ever had a horrible sin that occurred in, in, in your church? Now, we're not pointing fingers because somebody might be here that has repented of said sin. But if you have, you know that it tears apart your church. It hurts. It hurts deeply. So we can disagree, though, with some operations in the church. We can disagree where funds maybe go. Or even how we understand scripture, and we might have some doctrinal differences. But sin is where the line must be drawn. Because, again, that moral accountability we talked about, we're violating it. Therefore, we must address it. That does not mean the church is judgmental, mean, or cruel. It means that the church is doing what it's called to do, and it's giving you accountability. That's a good thing. Because without accountability and people correcting you, you will be self-destructive. Or at least allows you to be. Right? The good friend is the friend who looks at you square in the eye and says, you done messed up. So, what becomes heartbreaking, though, is when the body does turn on itself like a cancer and starts destroying it, slowly killing itself from the inside. Many of you guys might know this. I started a ministry a couple years ago called The Church Split. And The Church Split is a podcast and it's an apologetic source. Uh, and we interview ex experts. We do biblical exegesis breakdowns. We do all these different things. Um, Brian, actually, my co-host with me, is teaching the apologetics class today on the uh, books of the Bible, like how we got those books. Definitely stay after service for that. But one of the things is that we talk about, the reason why it's called the church split is because it was born out of a church split. When I was pastoring a church, the church turned in on itself, and it split. And it was always everything it could possibly be as vile as possible, except for violent. I've never seen people who call me their friend and their, and their mentor, and they would literally quote, I have your six, turn and stab me in the back so fast. Maybe you've experienced that. What I've had, just to give you guys a real quick overview, my wife's mother was dying of cancer, and... The pulpit search committee disagreed with me on uh, the topic of alcohol. Now, I'm not going to sit here and fight this right now, but my stance is imbibing is okay, drunk is bad. I think that's what the Bible teaches. So you can disagree. Again, we're in unity. Okay? But that was my position. I wrote that in on my doctrinal statement when it, the question was asked, and I sent it in. They hired me. It was fine. And then when that came to light, it became the biggest fight on planet Earth I've ever seen. And I was like, but I put it right here on paper. Like, I have it in the drawer. Why is this a deal? Like, well, we didn't read it. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> that thing was 23 pages. <laughs> like, the whole thing. How did you not read my doctrinal statement? That's your fault, not mine. 
And it got nasty because really what it was was a political game. People felt that the people who were in power were threatened. And it was literally three factions. I could point them out in the church. It was that group versus that group versus that group. And they all wanted me because I was the pastor. So they're all pulling different directions, wanting it. And then they didn't know what to do when I said no, no, and no. <laughs> and then it all imploded. During this time, my wife's mother was dying of cancer in Washington. My wife was out for four months nursing her mom to her deathbed. And the church is on full attack. Everyone's ego went away. I showed up one Sunday, a bunch of things had disappeared from the church because people, one person left the church and they said they were taking everything they ever gave to the church. Apparently it's not a gift to the Lord. Anyway, and I was so, I was distraught, guys. I was angry. I, was, I had one person show up uh, one Sunday morning right before service trying to cause a scene right out like in a foyer area like that. A whole group of the church was wrapped around them and they were just going at it. And I had to call them in my office and basically tell them, you need to get with or get out because we're not doing this here. I had to use, because of sin, I had to separate the church because they called themselves brothers and they were not being brotherly. And then the spiritual repercussions of those events, I was, as a pastor, counseling people for the next two years because they felt people that they were close to, that they were friends with, all turned their back on them. My wife, we didn't even know if the church was going to be able to stay open. She didn't know if she was coming home to a house while her mom was dying. But no, tell me more about your little woes. These are the things, and this is one story. Actually, I have more. You will not believe the amount of stories I have. We could be here all day. But I've seen the church turn on itself before. And that's why it's called the church split uniting a divided body. Just so you know, I'm not encouraging church splits. I'm just, it's an ironic name because I want unity. <laughs> but the point here, guys, is we need to be united and stop turning on each other. But we need to cast sin from among, among us because some of those issues I had saw coming for a while. But I was a young, young, young kid, pastor. And I was like, I don't know, maybe it'll work itself out. It didn't. Or, well, it did, but not in a good way. <laughs> I should have gotten ahead of that long beforehand. I should have taken that sin and cast it out. Because that's what he says right here. And why? He says, remove the evil person from among you. Because he was trying to get you to keep protecting the body. Right? So, Paul judges the sin and then rebukes them for being arrogant. He's saying they're not being humble. They weren't humble. Pride will get in your way in your church every time. There's a reason why God says he despises that the most. Now, if you're in 1 Corinthians still, great. Let's move forward to verses 9 through 13 in that same passage. Um, oh, what did I? Ha, there we go. Sorry. Um, all right. He says this. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I, do not, I did not mean the immoral people of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. <laughs> but actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister and is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. This is pretty straightforward, guys. The world is going to be the world, but we are the church, and we need to hold each other accountable. 
He says not to eat dinner with such a one. Like, oh yeah, I go to church, I'm part of the body of Christ, but you live a horrible life. The Bible says I'm not supposed to eat lunch with you. Why? The whole point is we want, you are trying to be part of this body, but you're not representing us properly. So why, how can I associate? Again, accountability to God. There's a moral commands, and we are held accountable to those commands. That's not easy, by the way, to, to live up to that statement. So he says, so casting out sin keeps unity. Otherwise, the cancer continues to grow from within, and rebuke, remember, keeps, our, uh, keeps us accountable and our egos in check. Why? Because unity requires humility. If you've ever been corrected, and the first thing it is when you're corrected is you get defensive, that's your pride. Take a moment to listen. And if they're still wrong, let them know. <laughs> but just take a moment to hear somebody out. Philippians 2, 1 through 4, you don't have to turn there, but it says this. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any, whoop, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider our others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And if the body of Christ actually lived that out, we might see a revival actually in our country now. Because they're going, wow, these people get something. Like, one of the biggest things I hear from people who live in these other communities is usually, well, they loved me, they accepted me, they had a community, they took care of us. That's supposed to be our job. And we're letting people take it. Don't let the world take it. Put others before ourselves. Um, I have a few minutes, so I'm going to go. So one of the things is, uh, <laughs> here you might feel awkward. You're right front and center. So a while ago, uh, many of you guys know, Micah and Julius came and lived with me and my wife for a few months. And it was because essentially, there's a very long, lots of drama, but essentially there was a horrible situation that they were in, very religiously abusive. We took them in and we put them in our house and it was fine. It was awesome, great time of fellowship, became brothers. But then what ended up happening was I would tell people about it and people would go, wow, I can't believe you did that. I couldn't do that. I could never disrupt my life in that way. And I had to stop myself every time from almost flipping the table. Because I'm like, yes, you can. We just choose not to. We choose not to inconvenience ourselves and to be, the, to be united and to be the ones who look out for our other interests rather than our own. Because we're Americans and we put ourselves before everybody. Be united. And that means we're united in one spirit and one purpose. What is that purpose? The gospel of Jesus Christ. What was the gospel of Jesus Christ? He put others before himself. So, that also requires humility and going out on the limb. Humility is vital to unity. It is. Put your pride and your ego. Set it aside. You are an image bearer of God, which means that you represent him here. Represent him. Have humility. And now finally, let's have unity and understanding. And that's your Bible reference, so you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. As we move. So notice how everything I'm talking about, everything I've talked about today, stems from a proper understanding of God. We are created in his image, so this means to understand God better, we, uh, to understand God better will help us understand our role better. 
Someone can have proper theology, but be horrible at practically applying it, right? Have you ever met somebody who's got all the brains in the world, but they just can't live it out? <laughs> they have all the understanding, they just can't apply it. But some people have a great application, but they do have terrible theology. <laughs> I've talked to people like, oh, mm, that's not accurate, but man, your heart's right. <laughs> but that is why proper theology plus proper practice equals biblical unity. Okay? This means you need to strive to understand God more clearly and to understand your role more practically. When we understand that God chose to be united with us and that all expectations flow from him and that we need to be unified amongst ourselves, dividing the evil from among us and working to give the gospel, we can be united in one mission, the gospel. I don't need to fight you over every little thing. You can be my friend. And then, you know what? I can make fun of you for your wrong views. It's fine. <laughs> if you guys have to know my friends, they're all just brutal. They just make fun of me all day long, but it's fine. But I can do that to you, and we'll be good friends. It's fine. Trust me. <laughs> anyway, let me just say this. Put away your petty squabbles. Those petty little squabbles. If there's someone in this room you need to get right with, go get right with them. Say, will you forgive me? Don't say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry is what we say when we bump into someone at Walmart. Make it meaningful. Hey, will you forgive me? I've been stupid. <laughs> I put my ego in, in front. I want unity. I mean, just come on. Some people are still upset in churches. I hear this all the time with all my pastor friends. I hear it all the time. People are still upset of how, what happened in 2020. Two years ago. <laughs> people are still upset about it. As if 2020 wasn't the most stressful, polarizing year, probably in decades, and it pushed everyone to their various ideological ends. It was stressful for everyone, and we want to be mad at somebody because you disagreed with them during all of that. Well, congratulations, that was most of the world. Is it worth your relationships? Is it worth your friendships? Is it worth unity? Is it worth the co possibly compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ or your family, friends, fellowship, the blessings of all that? No, put it aside. Put it aside. And don't say it. I, by the way, have very strong opinions about all that. But I put those aside. I'm not going to let those get in my way. Humble yourself as Christ humbled himself. And be the body of Christ. You are family, whether you like it or not. You know how we say all the time you can pick your friends, but not your family? Well, once you become a believer, you can't pick your family either. <laughs> You're part of the body of Christ, whether you like it or not. Which means we're stuck with each other. You can go to another church down the road, but guess what's going to happen in heaven? We're going to cross paths on the golden, on the golden roads. <laughs> so may as well get used to it now. Jesus chose to endure us, by the way. He chose to endure us despite our imperfections. Perhaps you should learn to do the same. That's what I'm saying here. God endures us despite our imperfections. Maybe we should do the same. Because I'm not perfect, and neither are you. The body of Christ is the means of which God has united us. But it will take some effort. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says this. This is Paul speaking again. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as we are called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. What is he saying here? Make every effort. That means it's not going to be easy, is it? If something takes effort, it's not easy, okay? And uh, my father-in-law would uh, once in a while ask me if I had any EGRs in my church. I was like, EGR? And he's like, yeah, extra grace required. <laughs> I've always liked that. Because <laughs> certain people are need a little extra grace required. Maybe you're one of those people. <laughs> Who knows? And uh, you know what? And sometimes it's funny how the perception can work. Because one person thinks one person is that way. It's not. It, but we all kind of click with different people. And that's okay. We're a, body, we're a body, we're going to function. So, effort means it's not easy. So notice, also, if you read that passage, he brings it back to the nature of God. This is practical unity, is practical theology. So, biblical unity is undivided oneness of purpose through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me, put the, let me explain something really quick to you, then I'll close up shop here. We think of that, that moment with Jesus. When Jesus says, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we go, ooh, that's scary. The gates of hell are attacking us. I want you guys to think about Jesus' wordage here. This was after everything, wasn't it? After resurrection. What are gates? Do gates attack? Do gates attack? No. What are they? They're defensive structures. Right? And if you look at the Greek there, prevail in our language has a negative connotation. So we're thinking the gates of hell attacking us. When really what he's saying is more something like this. On this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not withstand it. In other words, it's an offensive move. He resurrected. He defeated sin and death. We have the gospel and the power over life and death with Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. We're on the move against the gates of hell. And we have to be united in that purpose. So, if someone here is here who agrees on these things, up here, purpose, power, and passion in the gospel of Christ, we have fellowship. We're in unity. Which is why I think it's important that we understand what Ralph Waldo Emerson said. There's a name, by the way. God is unity, but always works in variety. So, guys, are you the, your challenge this week is, are you reflecting God's unity in the body of Christ? And is there sin in your life that is causing division in the body of Christ? That could be a personal sin. That could be sin against somebody else. Get it right. Let's have a united church. Because we're reflecting the unity of our God. Because he uni united with us, so let's unify with one another. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father.